Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hey there, Cove Church. Happy New Year. 2022 has dawned. And uh, from my wife and I, from Joy and I to you, uh, we wish you a very happy New Year. So glad that you're here today. At the end of our time, what I want to do is uh, sing together, I think probably a familiar song, but before that, share, I think probably an unfamiliar story. We'll get to that here in a second. There's this saying that I've heard among pastors many times. I think it's attributed to a guy named Kyle Eidelman in his 2011 book, Not a Fan, Becoming a Fully Committed Follower of Jesus. He says this, what you win people with is what you win them to. And let me give you a few examples of what I think maybe uh, Kyle uh, is after, you know, in churches that maybe win people with a feel-good message, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, as soon as something doesn't feel good in their lives, many times they'll abandon their faith or, you know, they're, they're gone. Uh, in churches who maybe win people with what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call a cheap grace or kind of a sloppy grace that just kind of excuses sin, then that's the kind of faith that they have a tendency to develop. And as soon as someone maybe challenges them on the sin in their life, they're gone. In churches who maybe win people conversely with a steady diet of just consistent, uh, solid biblical teaching, they've won them to a faith of solid Bible study and solid Bible teaching. And we could go on and on. A, a church maybe that's built around a pastor's winsome personality. As soon as that pastor is gone, you know, may, maybe that that, that person leaves, or, or maybe it's um, the glitz and the glam, the, the, the lights and the camera, the action. Maybe it's a, around a certain theology. Man, that's a big one. There are churches all over the world who have won people to a kind of a certain thought about God or a theology about God. And, and, and friends, listen, none of that stuff is necessarily bad, but if we're not careful, I think the mistake is, some of it is bad. <laughs> But if we're not careful, even the good stuff can be what was meant to be an initial stepping stone is the stone that we leave people on without helping them journey on in their faith. And so I want to attempt to um, win us today with a hard message, if you will. It's a biblical message. It comes right from the mouth of Jesus. And it, I believe that if I can win us with this message, I can win us to this message, but, but I don't want us to be discouraged by this idea of, you know, a hard message, because at the end, I'm going to give us a twist uh, on our time today. What's interesting is this message really, again, as I mentioned, comes straight from Jesus's mouth. So it's not Brandon winning us to anything. It's the message actually that Jesus used to win. Astonishingly, he used to win people to himself. In fact, when, when you hear the story, when we read this, the story in the Bible, some of you are going to think, man, this is not a message of gathering. It's a message of scattering. This, this isn't, this isn't how you, you know, kind of win friends and influence people. I believe the spirit, Cove Church, Pastor Brian, what are you getting at? I believe the Spirit wants to challenge and encourage and inspire our hearts today with this idea of discipleship. And that, that word in the original language, it means a student or a follower or a, a committed learner. And, and in our case, when, when we're looking at the Bible, it would be a committed follower, a learner of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this of discipleship, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. 
A.W. Tozer said this, only a disciple can make a disciple. Dallas Willard said this, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. How about this from Scott McKnight in a recent book that I read, uh, The King Jesus Gospel. He said this, what I heard was that you can have one without the other, that, that you can be saved and not be a disciple. Listen to what he says. I smelled a theological rat in that claim. And how about Dietrich Bonhoeffer again in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he's talking about call, when, when, when Jesus or Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Cove Church, the Great Commission is not that we would go make, you know, great leaders or that we would hold church services or worship services or small groups or that we would go serve the poor or have great big evangelistic crusades. The call, according to Matthew 28, for all of us is that we would go and make disciples. And everything that I just listed might be wonderful, necessary ingredients, but they in and of themselves are not the call. The call is to go and make disciples. Disciples, one quick note, uh, this verse alone, Cove Church, rules out any type of privatized faith, that kind of that faith that would say, you know, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need, you know, anyone else. If that were the case, Cove Church, what Jesus would have done right here in Matthew 28 that, that I just quoted, you know, as he's ascending to heaven and, you know, waving goodbye to the disciples, is he would have said something like this. Listen, you guys don't worry about making disciples. I'll take care of that. You guys will probably mess it up anyway. <laughs> you guys just sit back and relax. I'll handle it. And you guys wait for heaven. We'll see you sometime soon. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus commissioned people to make disciples of people. So what I want to do is I want to give us a working definition of discipleship. And, and we're going to borrow this directly from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He uh, defines Discipleship this way. In summary, then, the disciple or apprentice of Jesus, as recognized by the New Testament, is one who is firmly decided, that emphasis is mine, firmly decided to lead his or her life, whatever that may be, as Jesus himself would do it. So I want to view our topic today of discipleship through the lens of a parable. And before we do, I want to give us just some insight, especially for those who are maybe new to the faith or new to the Bible, some insight into this idea of parables. Maybe you've heard that word before, but you don't fully understand what that word means or how Jesus uses them. Jesus was a master storyteller. In fact, about 35% of his teachings used the lens uh, of a parable. And Jesus wasn't the only one. There were, there were many teachers and other religions, in fact, throughout history who have used the idea of stories or, or parables. Parable, a parable, it really is a made-up story to make a point. Um, it, it, it's a story with intent. In fact, one of the literal meanings of that word parable is to cast alongside. And so you might have a truth and then you cast alongside of it this story to help people see and understand the truth. And so they have if that's the case, they have a couple of levels then, two levels at least. There's the story level through which we see the truth level that's trying to be conveyed. Klein Snodgrass in his book, Stories with Intent about the parables of Jesus reminds us that the parables presuppose the kingdom of God. And so, Church, if that's true, and I think that it is, when you're reading a parable of Jesus uh, in the Bible, wrapped in there at the core of it, is the kingdom, you know, what is this about? Well, at the very least we know it presupposes already before we even read it, it's about the kingdom of God. They're about 
God. They're about God's kingdom, about God's expectations for humans. And Snodgrass says this, that their main purpose is to goad people into response. And there's all types of parables. There's some that are clear in their purpose and interpretation, others that are a little more veiled. There are interrogative parables and similitude parables and single indirect parables and double indirect parables. And our eyes begin to roll back in our heads. Pastor Brian, what, you know, what's the point? The point is this, that Jesus, the kingdom was so important to Jesus that he came at it a lot of different directions. He would cast these, these, these parables, these stories alongside the truth to help people understand the kingdom of God, but we received this warning from Snodgrass. I, I, I want to read this quote. It's a lengthy one, but I think it's important. He says, The parables are among the most abused and mistreated stories ever told. They have been twisted, subverted, realigned, and psychologized for centuries by pastors and scholars, and I would probably add by Christians in general. Pastors and scholars alike, scholars and pastors have shifted them from their purpose in order to promote sociological or homiletical agendas. He goes on, parables are, if not fragile, at least vulnerable and have been manipulated for all kinds of theological, political, social and personal purposes. But listen to this hope. He says this, but the parables of Jesus do not go quietly into the night. They powerfully and stubbornly keep demanding new attention and keep expressing their message. Ultimately, they are resistant, saying, in effect, read me again. Someone who reads, you know, reads and tries to, um, you know, shove it through their own lens, some political agenda or sociological agenda. That parable would say, nope, that's not it. It's about the kingdom of God. Read me again. So let's go to where about two thirds of Jesus's parables reside. That would be in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. I want to read it through. I'll give some commentary along the way, share with you a big idea, and then we'll end with a story and a song. Verse 25 says this, Now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds. Notice this is not just the disciples or the super saints. The disciples weren't super saints anyways, but it, but it isn't just the super religious. They're great crowds. This is everyday normal folks living their lives who are compelled by this guy named Jesus. Maybe they, they heard a story or they, they saw a miracle or, or they, you know, they heard part of a teaching and they're just, they've got questions. So this large crowd begins to follow Jesus. And the Bible says this, that he turned and said to them, look at verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Cove Church, just a quick note so that we don't lose some of you. When you hear that word hate, a couple of things, just interpretation wise, in Jesus's day, the idea of hyperbole or kind of dramatic imagery to make a point would be very common. And Jesus used it often. That's number one. Number two, when you read this idea of hate within the phrase in the original language, it would be it would be interpreted, but also understood by those around this way, that when your love for me is compared to your love with your family, when others would see your love for me, your love for your family would, compale, would, would pale in comparison so much so that it would seem like almost a hatred for your family because you love me so much. Cove Church, I think this is known as kind of calling the crowd. I mean, it, that may have softened it just a little bit, but let's be honest. That's a pretty stark statement. 
This is not necessarily gathering. This would, this would be, as we mentioned earlier, it would be scattered. First of all, who says stuff like this? Right? Who, who gets to say, listen, you need to love me more than you love your family. In, in fact, so much so that it looks like hatred for your own family because of your great love for him. Who gets to say, what if Pastor Aaron stood up on a Sunday morning and said, Cove Church, you know, kind of if you're a member here and, and you, you don't love me, you know, more than your own family. In fact, it's got to look like almost like because you love me so much, uh, it looks like hatred for your own family. How many of you would still attend Culture. Who gets to say that stuff? You know, some delusional, crazy person, or that person might actually be God. There are many who would say that Jesus never claimed to be God, which is absolutely false. Jesus claimed to be God over and over again, including this text right here. Number two, I thought the idea was to have more people in the kingdom of God, not less people. Can you imagine if Jesus stood up and said something like this in our churches today? <laughs> Can you imagine if Jesus had a PR person, right? Someone who handled maybe his social media, you know, handles. They'd be, and they'd probably pull Jesus aside. Like, you, you got to tone. I have to now go back out and sue this, you know, on all your accounts. You got to tone down the rhetoric, Jesus. To which Jesus would promptly say, nope. And then he would double down. Look what he says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Cove Church Jesus is recorded as saying this multiple times throughout the Gospels and other places in Luke 9, 23. This idea of a cross. And we have to remember that this is before Jesus went to the cross. And so it wouldn't, his words wouldn't be fully understood until he went to the cross and rose again. But... His hearers, they understand Roman crucifixion. They, you know, they've seen some of their streets lined with people crucified on crosses. And who, I mean, who, who wants to hear this message, right, Cove Church? I mean, who, we wear crosses as jewelry today, but do you know how weird that is? How, how many of us would wear like a, a guillotine or, you know, an electric chair around our necks? It's, that's an instrument of death. Who wants to pick up their cross? and follow Jesus. And so Jesus draws this red line in the sand to this huge crowd, anyone listening, anyone reading the story like we are today. And he says, in effect, in order to be a disciple of mine, you have to have a new love, a new fidelity, a new priority. And it's not your family, it's not your own life, and it will cost you everything. And I just want all of you to know who are following me right now. I want you to understand the cost of continuing to follow me down this road. I want it to be clear. I want to make it clear right now. But Jesus isn't done. That would have been enough, but he's not done. He's going to double and triple down. And, and he's so, you know, he's just kind of hit this crowd with a stun gun and they're rocked. And so he, he tells a couple of stories. And I love that Jesus does this. It, it eases the tension, I think, in people's minds. We, we can, you know, a, a well-placed story can help us digest things that just normal words don't. And he says this, so verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What's interesting, uh, Cove Church, is that Jesus may have had, when he told this story, what may have given rise to the story in his mind was actually a Guinness World Record. Now, 
I understand that Guinness wasn't around in Jesus's day, but there was something that happened in 27 AD that still stands for all the wrong reasons as a record today. It's known as the uh, Fidene disaster. Uh, it's the worst sporting disaster occurred uh, that's ever occurred in human history near uh, Rome, Italy. According to the accounts written by Roman historians Tacitus and uh, Sidonius, a wooden amphitheater built as a commercial venture by a freedman named Attilius collapsed during a gladiatorial contest. In Tacitus's annals, he stated that some 50,000 people were killed or seriously injured. And Sidonius uh, said this in, in his um, history, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. He gives a death toll of 20,000 people. It still stands as a record today, maybe more recent. This idea of not counting the cost to build a structure and not being able to finish the structure, what's known as McCaig's Tower in Scotland, You'll see some pictures on the screen of this unfinished tower just um, overlooking this town called Oban in Scotland. And, and it's a story of a wealthy banker who set out to build this tower. His name was John Stuart McCaig, and he commissioned the tower to be built. It started in 1897, but it stopped in 1902 when he had a heart attack. Only the outer shell was finished, and it's remained unfinished until this day. And it's garnered the nickname McCaig's Folly. Jesus goes on in verse 31, he tells another story. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so another example that may have been in, given rise to the story in Jesus's mind actually occurred during his lifetime. In 29 AD, Herod Antipas uh, went out to war and he lost badly. He lost personnel. He lost soldiers, armaments. He was plundered. He had, he had not counted the cost of going to war. So listen to how Jesus brings these parables. He brings his point. You know, that was all the top of the funnel. That, that would have been enough. But Jesus drives it home. He says, so therefore, based on everything I've just said, you know, kind of the cold water that I, I threw down into your brain and, uh, and, and, and the stories that I just told, here's what I want you to understand. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Cultures that word renounce. It means to leave. It means to give up. It, need, it means to forsake. How about this? It means to say goodbye. Listen to it in the message. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. The Amplified adds this bit of commentary. Carefully consider the cost and then for my sake, say goodbye to it. Church, does this mean that we all take vows of poverty? Does this mean that we all run out of service today and, and sell all that we have and follow Jesus? I, I suppose that that's what it could mean for some people and, and certainly all of us when necessary. Cultures, we would be willing to for the sake of following Jesus. But if I understand the kingdom, the kingdom is first about the heart. It's an interior work. It's an inward righteousness. And so at the heart level, 
My plans surrender to his plans. My possessions are his possessions. My, you know, my, my thoughts, my sexuality is all submitted to his design and his plan. My relationships yield to my relationship with him. To be a disciple means I'm willing to kiss it all goodbye for the sake of following Jesus. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, but whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul had gained a lot in his life, especially in the area of education and status. But whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the, listen to this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Coaches, let me give you our big idea on the screen today. Believing in Jesus is free, but becoming like Jesus will cost you everything. This process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others is nothing less than an all or nothing proposition. And friends, the sad reality is that in the Western church, the the American church, if you will, the churches, we've become really good at winning people to Jesus and not so good at helping people become like Jesus. And listen, I I, want to stop right here for a second because I've probably dug us a pretty big hole. The hope is this. Part of the hope is this. Without the Holy Spirit, none of us are able to hear these words of Jesus, these hard words of Jesus, and go out and do it. We need the power, the inspiration, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And I think part of the reason we need it is because of what we said earlier, that Jesus uses people. He commissioned people to reach people. He commissioned people to make disciples of people. And, and I have a tendency, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to kind of flinch when someone tries to disciple me. You know, when, when, when someone challenges me on my conduct or my finances or, you know, my attitude, who, who do they think they are? Who do they think they are trying to help me look more like Jesus? And so we accuse them, we dismiss it as being judgmental or nosy or self-righteous. Coach Church, I want to gently yet firmly let us know what it means to be discipled at Cope Church. For those who have been with us for a long time, for those who maybe are new to Cope Church, one of the things I love about Jesus, especially in this story, is he managed expectations right up front. And, 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 and so maybe I want to manage expectations when it comes to discipleship this process of being formed in the image of Jesus and how that takes place, I want to gently yet firmly let us know that we're going to do it Jesus' way. That that we're going to move beyond kind of the feel good, beyond spectator sport, beyond coming to church to maybe just meet my needs, beyond an independent, individualized, siloed faith that allows me to kind of create Jesus in whatever image I need him to be for my life or allows me to create whatever theology I want in order to justify how I want to live. We're going to be those who ask hard questions of one another, who, who challenge the right things, who admit when we're wrong, and a people willing to count up the cost and do it often and are willing to kiss it goodbye. 
for the sake of following Jesus. Listen to Dallas Willard again. He's speaking to the current condition uh, of, of the Western church or, uh, w- you know, when it comes to discipleship or lack thereof. He says this, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It's, it's, it's not the much discussed moral failures or financial abuses or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. And it is an accepted reality, he says. The division of professing Christians into those for whom it is a matter of whole life devotion to God and those who maintain a consumer or client relationship to the church has now been an accepted reality for over 1,500 years. Friends, listen, I don't have all the answers when it comes to discipleship. I, I, I may not even have some. I have a few. I don't have all the answers on exactly how to do it for, for every person but I know the starting point is this heart condition that we're willing to kiss it all goodbye, that we're willing to count it all up. We're willing to wave goodbye to it for the sake of following Jesus. So, Cope Church, I mentioned the twist. This parable could leave us, you know, thinking that Jesus has predetermined the cost, which he has, it's gonna cost us everything. But, but, there's, but that there's only one response, and that would be, you know, abject fear or despondency or depression, right? Who, who could do this? Who wants to do this? Who, who wants to say goodbye to everything and go follow Jesus? But I don't think that's the purpose. And Jesus telling this parable, I think it's clarity. I, I don't think that Jesus turned around, for instance, with anger in his eyes, with, with, with an edge on his voice to kind of shoo the people away. I think he turned around with love in his eyes and clarity in his voice so that people would take the time to really weigh the value of everything, weigh the value of everything that they hold dear and, and then look at it over and against this newfound kingdom, this thing that they found, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think he wanted them to do it because he knew the conclusion that many of them would come to. That not only is it worth it, but I would be filled with joy that I couldn't wait to open up my hand on my possession, plans and people, everything that I hold dear in order to embrace him. Pastor Brandon, where do you get this? Well, I get it from the story, but I... And and we just read the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul did this very thing. But also in Matthew 13, Jesus shares a a couple of short parables back to back. Uh, One of a treasure in a field and the other of a pearl that's found. And and so he he says, listen, there there was this um, there's this guy who found this kind of hidden treasure in a field. And when he when he uncovered it, he you know kind of looked around. The Bible says he covered it back up because right? he didn't want anyone else to find it. So he goes and he sells. The Bible says he was filled with joy and he went and he calculated the cost and he went and sold everything that he had. And he bought the field. Remember, it's about the kingdom of God. The, the parables presuppose the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, here, here, here's another story for you. There's this businessman, a merchant, and he, he, he was dealing in pearls, buying and selling pearls, and he found the one pearl. 
He found the pearl of a lifetime. We would know it today as the, the pearl of great price. And he went and sold every, he counted the cost, and he went and sold everything that he had. He said, listen, I'll be right back. Sold it all and came back and bought this pearl. Both, cultures, both of these made up stories, these made up people, they counted the cost. And once they did, once they had clarity, they were filled with joy and they couldn't wait to go sell it all for the sake of the kingdom. So let me revise our big idea today. I had a twist, our big idea, believing in Jesus is free, but becoming like Jesus will cost you everything, but it's always worth it. I mentioned um, a familiar song and maybe an unfamiliar story. Um, I've mentioned the Welsh revivals a few times. And um, th they happened at the, at the turn of the 20th century. They were led by a pastor named Evan Roberts. Amazing what happened. Hundreds of thousands of people saved. Um, the effects of which we're still, we can, we can see today. That, that you know, spun off missionaries around the world. And some missionaries landed in northern India, a place called Assam. And there were hundreds of kind of warrior tribes. They were known as headhunters. And um, so it's into this hostile territory that these missionaries landed and, and it was tough sledding. It was hard soil and they were, they were rejected. They weren't welcomed as you can imagine. But this one missionary led this one man and his family to Jesus. And that man and his family began to lead other people in the village to Jesus. Well, the chief got wind of it and he was concerned. So he grabbed his warriors because he, you know, he didn't know what was going on. He grabbed some of his warriors and he went out and he, and he brought this man out and he lined them up. This man, his wife, his two sons and the village gathered around. And the chief said this, you need to renounce whatever this faith is and stop preaching this message or you and your family are going to die. And the man responded this way. His name was Noxang. He said, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. To which the chief gave the order and his warriors drew back their bow and they shot his two sons through with arrows. And his sons died right in front of him and his wife. And the chief said, you've just lost your two sons. You renounce your faith now and stop this or your wife is next. And the next words out of Noxing's mouth were this, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back. To which the chief again gave the order and his warriors shot his wife and she died right in front of him. And the chief told Noxang, he said, listen, you've just lost your sons, your wife. You have nothing left. Renounce your faith or you're next. And his final words were these, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. To which the chief gave the final order and they shot Noxang. And it's from his words that we have uh, this song. This song was written that we've sung for decades now that is probably familiar to many of us, even those who are not terribly familiar with Christianity. I have decided to follow Jesus. What's interesting, kind of the rest of the story, Code Church, is that as the story is told and as the story goes, this chief, while even though he is the one who gave the execution orders, 
he was filled with some turmoil. He could not reconcile. He could not understand why this man would watch his sons and his wife and eventually give his own life, uh, why he would give it all up for a man who lived some 2000 years ago. He just, it just did not make sense to him. And he decided he needed to know what this man knew. And he eventually became a Christian and the gospel spread throughout that village. Cove Church, in the words of Dallas Willard, Knox Singh had firmly decided. He had counted the cost and there was no turning back. Believing in Jesus is free, but becoming like Jesus will cost us everything. And it's always worth it. Bless you, Cove Church. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.